What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Jacob Daniel. This is the Daniel 3 podcast. So uh, thanks for those of you who are tuning in live or if you're watching afterwards on the recording. uh, Thank you for watching as well. Um, Plugs before we uh, get started. Um, The website, you know, I've I've been plugging the website every episode uh, since we uh, launched it last month. That's Daniel318.com. Go check it out. Uh, if you want to, you know, submit comments or questions for the show, or if you, you know, have a topic you want to discuss and come on the show and talk about, uh, all of that needs to be set up and scheduled through uh, the website. Um, so definitely check that out if you want. Um, the podcast, you know, you can watch it live on YouTube, like, you know, I'm streaming right now. Obviously, you can also find the podcast um, pretty much anywhere, you know, the audio forms. Uh, it's on um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts. Um, I'm on I'm on podcast applications I didn't even know existed, but um, <laughs> but uh, they just you know uh, the the um, service I use puts me on there. So um, yeah, that's about it for uh, for plugs for right now. I'm excited to have uh, the guest that we have tonight. Um, so I'm going to bring him into uh, the stream now. His name is uh, Gregory Baus. Greg, how are you doing tonight, man? You, you muted yourself. <laughs> oh, I, I was trying to unmute and I'm muted. Uh, yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, for people who have watched the show for a long time before it uh, grew to what it is today, they they or if you, you know just watched in, in general, um, they might have seen that I've, I've had Greg on before, but it's been a while. So, um, and, you know, it's funny that we actually live somewhat close to each other, but we still haven't uh, <laughs> we haven't we haven't uh found a way to to connect yet and do anything in person which we 
we need to do sometime. Uh, grab a grab a yeah, beer we'll or something. We'll, yeah. we'll meet up in New York. I know a couple good uh, brew pubs there. Yeah, for sure. So, um, but for those, you know, for anyone who's who's uh, tuning in and who isn't familiar with you, hasn't watched the prior episode, maybe just give like a, I don't know, two, three minute introduction of uh, like your background and uh, kind of like what led you to uh, the, the ideals of, of, of Christian anarchism. Well, I'm originally from Baltimore, uh, grew up there for the most part, and uh, then uh Initially, I went to university in around Chattanooga, and then Canada, and then Amsterdam. <laughs> and uh, then I spent, you know, half a career overseas uh, in Asia, and then in various parts. Uh, I was for a, a time in Japan, and then Cambodia, and then China. And, uh, most recently, hello, it's been a while now <laughs> I was in Budapest, Hungary, uh, teaching English, but that was my second career <laughs> and I'm back to my first career, which is, uh, being a lifetime student of philosophy. And, um, yeah, you had you had initially when you had promoted the thing, you said biblical scholar, but I am not a biblical scholar, nor the son of a biblical scholar. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I but I am a student of uh philosophy. I wanted to plug a friend's uh theology podcast at some point. Uh anyway, just to give people a feel if they're interested for this kind of thing. If they're curious. Sure. If they're Theo curious. Theo curious. <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, so these days, yeah, I'm living in central Pennsylvania and, uh, I am, uh, working odd jobs to pay the rent and, um, I'm enrolled in school to get school again at a South African university. But, uh, yeah, so I write and research in philosophy, particularly I'm dealing with the work of uh, an obscure Dutch philosopher named Herman Doiverd and he'll, he'll come up in our yeah. chat. But um, it was about 2008 that I became a confirmed card carrying anarchist. Card carrying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we need our own cards. I mean, I have like a, I have a, yeah. a liber I'm a card carrying member of the libertarian party, although sometimes that feels worthless, but, uh, we should have, we should have anarchist cards. Well, I got it right here just to prove I'm not making it up. They're right there. Nice. I'm a card card right. carrying member. Sweet. <laughs> well, um, uh, I don't know. So what 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 else do you want to know? <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> what, um, what, what do people care about? Well, you know, I always like to ask my guests, you know, like what was, you know, maybe one or two pivotal moments or or arguments or just, you know, things that kind of led them to, uh, you know, embracing anarchism. I know you kind of went into this in the last podcast, too, but, you know, yeah, just sure. kind of like the, 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 the Reader's Digest version of it. Yeah, well, uh, I had always had something of a classical liberal perspective, but uh it was when I began to study economics around 2006 ish. 
uh, while I was in grad school the first time. Uh, and that led me, you know, into Austrian perspectives and into Murray Rothbard. So that was that, but, you know, there was this, uh, lecture series with the Mises Institute, uh, by Roderick Long, who's a philosophy professor at Auburn university, I think. And, uh, this is several years back now, over 10 years ago that he did the series, maybe more, maybe almost 20 years. I mean, it's called the foundations of libertarian ethics. Um, the original audio is still available on Mises, uh, on Mises.org, but, um, the videos <laughs> sort of disappeared, but, mm. uh, Carrie Baldwin, our mutual friend yeah. re uploaded them to her channel. So check out Carrie Baldwin or Mere Liberty, whatever it's called. I think it's under her name, Carrie Baldwin, uh, YouTube channel. And uh, or just search for Roderick Long Foundations Libertarian Ethics uh, lecture series. So the tenth in that series, it was ten ten lecture series. The tenth one, he talked about an anarchist legal order, and he gave a uh, Lockean critique of Locke, and uh, he basically set up Locke's. Um, objections to or reasons for um, a state, objections to a stateless uh, society, and he sort of used them to argue against Locke's uh, reasons, saying that uh, the, the thing that he was wanting, the reasons that he wanted a state are reasons for no state. Mm, yeah, it's kind of like... um. It's kind of like when Michael Malice, uh, and he, he's not the only one that says this, but it's like they'll be like the best arguments against anarchy are really just arguments against the status quo. It's kind of like in that same vein, like when people go, but warlords would take over. It's like, well, <laughs> what yeah. What do you think we have now? You know, it's just right. one common objection. Yeah, if you don't want warlords, then you don't want the state. Right. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's definitely worth checking out the whole series, but especially that last one. And, uh, if you're, if you're a minarchist, particularly, I think it's, it's, uh, compelling, at least if you're a minarchist for the reasons that I was one, which were Lockean. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's interesting. Like, I don't know if it's possible. I'd imagine it's possible, but I don't really know of anyone who fits this, but I don't know anyone who went straight from like a regular, like plain Jane duopoly statist, to anarchist it seems like everyone has to make at least some kind of brief pit stop at at minarchy um but i mean i guess it's possible but it's always it, it makes um you know kind of like act like when you're trying to reach people and engage in any kind of politically minded activism to change people's minds it's it's kind of weird because like so like when you're doing christian evangelism the goal isn't to get them from being a sinner to being a half sinner or a minimal sinner and then to like, and then to embrace Christ, you're trying to get them to come like, you know, come to Christ and repent. But when you're trying to get people to come to like the principles of like anarchism, especially like Austrian uh, libertarianism, it's like, you almost have to first like teach them some economics, get them to at least get to that minarchist position first, and then you can push them over the edge. Well, if that's a tendency, just like perhaps it's a tendency for people to, adopt some kind of bogus form of Christianity before they become reformed. 
<laughs> then, um, you know, I don't think that's necessary. So anyway, in, in talking to people about these ideas, I, I don't adopt any kind of like halfway, um, strategy, but, hmm. but, but I think as tendencies go, I, I think you're right. Just because it's hard to all at once give up our prior assumptions. Right. But, um, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, you know, you talked about, so like, uh, I forget the exact phrase you use. We're talking about the, the Lockean critique. Um, yeah. but, but you, you said it was something order and that kind of gets into what we were wanting to talk about tonight. Kind of like the, the, these themes there's, there's often this conflation of, of anarchism and chaos. And then the state is inherently some kind of, uh, agent of, of order and authority. And unfortunately we see a lot of libertarians and anarchists both christian and non-christian but but we've we've also seen this a lot within specifically like christian libertarianism who when they become libertarian they they tend to just they almost embrace whether they would say this like whether or not they would actually like um explicitly say that they're embracing this i kind of think they are they're embracing more of a lawlessness form of anarchism and libertarianism which I've never been a big fan of. And then when I met like you and Kerry Baldwin and, and, you know, people at LCI and stuff, it kind of, you know, that was like where I kind of like nestled in and found my sort of like, you know, helped me to kind of like bridge the gap between like theology and political theory, because I'd always felt like, um, you know, authority and, and governance don't have to be intrinsically tied to statism. That's right. um, but it but it's always hard because it's like I mean I mean just the word government has been so you know like intrinsically tied to to the idea of the nation state that if I just say to a person I'm not against government they would say well you can't be an anarchist um and and yeah. so it, it it becomes it almost becomes a battle of semantics which can be rather exhausting um yeah. but you know what was you know, I mean, you don't have to go into the exact, you know, critique that you were citing there. But I mean, what what are sort of like the, um, I know, like the, the the arguments that that you use or that you uh, kind of uh, I don't know present to people, uh, you know, when when, we're, when you're starting a conversation with them about how anarchism isn't just like, you know, it, it's not Mad Max, it's not the uh, what are those uh, the Purge movies or uh, something like that, like it's not. Uh, you know, it, it's not chaos. <laughs> well, Carrie's got a good series of articles at the Libertarian Christian Institute, uh, a, a series of four articles sort of going through, um, in a way, some of what um, uh, Long covers, the Locking Critique of Locke. Actually, just maybe the first one, but then she goes into some other things to help minarchists sort of move along. <laughs> but... Um, so just look for her material. Um, if you go to uh, mereliberty.com slash Romans 13, you'll see some of my writings there and Carrie's articles are listed there. So that's a good place to go. Um, well, what I normally talk about with people specifically often, you know, depends on where they are and what they're 
actual view is as as I'm coming to understand it, you know, interacting with what they say and think. But, um, you know, I think amongst our fellow, let's say, confessional reformed um, fellow believers, you know, we can say we affirm the reformed confessions uh, on the teaching of the civil magistrate. And we just don't think that the, the form of civil magistrate has to be a monopoly state. Hmm. And, and, and that's, uh, that's honest and, and true. <laughs> and what they affirm does not require a monopoly state. Uh, thankfully, if they did, we'd have to modify it. But, um, in any case, uh, one of the, one of the key points is, um, the idea of a third party arbiter, right? Hmm. Yeah. So one of the principles of, uh, adjudicating disputes is that no one should be a judge in their own case. And if you have a, uh, monopoly adjudicator, uh, which is what the state claims in terms of its, uh, own power or position or jurisdiction or monopoly or whatever, um, then you have a conflict of a fundamental justice. There's some Latin term for it, but whatever it's, it's a major issue and statism conflicts with that. So it inherently conflicts with the principles of civil justice. So that, that's a great point to, to bring up that no one has an, no one has a coherent answer for that leaves the state in a position of being justifiable. Um, but yeah, so I guess uh, our topic tonight being sphere sovereignty, occasionally I'll bring that up. Um, that is uh, like some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, there is uh, there are certain things you can say biblically or about the Bible. And then there's political theory. Sure. And that's important to make a distinction between those things because of course we think you can be a Christian and be confused about political issues, have, have a, have a bad political philosophy. We think that's possible. Your Christianity doesn't depend on having those things right. Yeah. But, I mean, there, there, there's some out there that, that think that that's the case, but they're just confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think it's important to point out that, um, you know, what we're talking about here, what we're about to talk about anyway, is, um, is not, uh, theology. It's not exegesis from the Bible, but we call it uh, a Christian view of things because it's informed by our um, understanding of what God's word says. Sure. So, yeah. And that, yeah, that's that, the, 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 uh, the topic yeah, for tonight, sphere sovereignty, where does that come from? I mean, um, you know, like the, the originator of it and, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know how much, you know, of like, I, I've started to study kind of like the history of the, the I, I'm not quite through all the, like I, I've, I've been studying church history, 
and I've, I got like to the point of the Reformation, but I haven't gotten past Calvin yet. So I've, I've yet to get to the Dutch reformers from a hist- like the, the history of it yet. I was uh-huh. trying to get there before this episode, but just like re- I only have so much time to read and do stuff. Yeah. Um, but so I don't know how much you know about the history. I don't know if it's that important, but um, what yeah, is the idea? It. What is the idea of sphere sovereignty? Where did it originate from? And, you know, what are like the you know historical events? Maybe that, if they played a role in that creation, you know, that are at play. All right. So as a brief definition uh, or uh, to characterize sphere sovereignty, it's a, a view of the normative arrangement uh, and relations between different kinds of societal communities. So we, we've got all these societal communities, they're of different kinds, and somehow they're arranged with respect to each other, somehow they relate to each other. And that, that's what sphere sovereignty addresses. And uh, initially, I think the, the words, the phrase, uh, sovereignty in its own sphere or sovereignty in its own circle was... Uh, I don't know if it was coined exactly by Guillaume Grün von Prinsterer. <laughs> and uh, wait a minute. Gotta, you could have completely check. mispronounced that. Nobody would no one would challenge you right now. I like to call him Billy Green. Billy Green. Because uh, Guillaume is... Um... <laughs> no one calls him Billy Green, by the way. Okay. Uh, Guillaume is like uh, Willem or William. And Grun was his family oh, okay. name, and Von Prinsterer was like, like Von right. Mises, like the title, you know. Um, so his dates were uh, 18, 1801 to 1876, um, around the, the Hague in uh, Den Haag in uh, the Netherlands. And uh, he was sort of part of the... Uh, well, he he was heavily influenced by, I guess, what was called the revai or the revival or the awakening of Calvinism, sort of after the Enlightenment in uh, in in Western Europe. So Switzerland, Scotland, Germany, hmm, yeah, uh, the Netherlands, some other places like that. So. And maybe in England as well, and uh, so those were and and, and neo Calvinism as a movement sort of came out of the uh, Calvinistic reawakening at that time in the eighteen hundreds. Was it was it partly out of like because wasn't Protestantism of all brands sort of like heavily restricted and persecuted for much of like the 17th and like 16th 16th and 17th centuries at least in a lot of these areas yeah earlier yeah. earlier in the 1500s and 1600s but then when the wars of religion ended things kind of settled out yeah and uh but then the enlightenment came in and secularization and uh quote unquote historical modernist whatever enlightenment right yeah nationalism and thinking uh, undermined uh, Christian theology quite a lot, uh, not in small part due to the fact that the churches were state churches. And so when the official universities and religious schools controlled by the state 
went liberal, it had a negative influence on the church. So that's just a hmm. historical lesson on why churches nothing like that's not happening be, today. <laughs> should not be connected to the state. Um, in any case, so uh, from Princeton, or a lot of people just call him Grun. Uh, he initially came up with the phrase. He uh, was involved, I guess, at the time in the Netherlands. Uh, a fellow that came in towards the end of his career, uh, named Abraham Kuyper, was really instrumental in turning that, in, focusing that into more of a concrete idea, developing that more, and then. Uh, Later, generation later, the philosopher Hermann Doiverd, who was um, 1894 to 1977. Uh, and all right, so, so those are some of the people. It actually goes back a little bit earlier uh, in, in some of its conception to um, Johannes Althusius. Let me trying to remember his dates, although he had largely his work Politica had largely been forgotten until it was um, revived by Otto von Gerke right, mm -hmm. right around the time of Kuiper. So it's, it's unlikely that uh, Kuiper was aware of his work, but he mentions this guy, another Johann or Johannes Alsted, who was also a, uh, Calvinist uh, political thinker. Anyway, Althusius was um, 1557 to 1638, so early 1600s. Um, he had a notion, sometimes it's called consociationalism, or maybe it's called that now. I don't know if it was called that then, but in any case, Kuiper comes around uh, in the 1860s, 70s, 1880s. Um, he died in 1920. And uh, he, he really started to uh, develop the notion of sphere sovereignty as societal communities and their, the way they're arranged, how they relate to each other, um, particularly with respect to the state non-state communities in relation to the state. And that was the basis of the idea was um, in the Reformation, you had this question, you know, during the medieval period, basically up to that time, the Roman church was claiming uh, temporal power, right? So mm -hmm. the Roman Catholic church said, uh, the papacy right <laughs> or 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 the roman uh, church had uh power of the sword and uh when the reformation came in let's say from at least the 1520s into the 1550s and so on uh particularly calvinist reformed thinkers wanted to the the if the monopoly so to speak the religious monopoly of the roman church was broken and the 
state kind of stepped in to fill the power vacuum, uh, they were trying to make room again for the church and non-state communities. So in other words, if the state, if the church gave up its claim to temporal power, to uh, sword power, to coercive power, mm -hmm. then you can see how the state would have this uh, incentive to, to, to grab it all. And you see the rise of absolute monarchy around this time, hmm. right? So uh, initially, the reformed thinkers were trying to, you see this reaction against uh, monarchical absolutism, absolute monarchy, right? Right. So, so that's, that's sort of the, that's what gets it going. And particularly because you have, uh, say, Roman Catholic princes or kings or whatever persecuting Calvinist Christians in different, particularly France and other places. It was a little iffy with the Lutherans there in parts of Germany <laughs> and so on. Um, but uh, yeah, so it begins with this idea of what we would call now in some ways separation of church and state, although it was articulated somewhat differently then because they also had civil, civilly established churches. Um, so we see this idea of getting more refined, uh, but they, yeah, we're, we're wanting to limit the power of the government uh, to be able to resist tyranny. So it sort of begin, it begins in, in that kind of way. And sure. then in the, the rise of modernism, there's sort of this uh, historical consciousness about the development of uh, pluriformity, multiple different kinds of societal communities, right? And in, in, so in the medieval times, you had sort of this idea of the uh, three estates, whatever it was. The, you had the, the nobles, the nobility, the bishops and the church, and the commoners. Hmm. And somehow, and some people sort of modified that idea into there's, you know, some basic institutions of civil government of the church and family, right? So you can see how thinking about um, society not being just this undifferentiated whole, just one thing of it, of it has sort of having different parts and that's something about taking account and respecting those different parts of society, those different ways that human society is organized is important, hmm. right? And it's important in terms of limit, limiting any one part of society's power. Um, think of it in terms of something like division of labor. Yeah, I was going to make that comparison. I was going to say it kind of sounds like yeah. division of labor within within authority human, structures. Human communal life. Yeah, yeah. human communal life. Um, one thing I think we can point listeners to is the statement, uh, what is reformed anarchism? Uh, the reformed there refers to 
reformed Christianity, although if it has a sort of side implication for reforming anarchism, that's okay too. But anyway, <laughs> if you go to uh, tiny, tinyurl.com, T-I-N-Y-U-R-L.com slash refo anarchism, R-E-F-O anarchism. Um, you should find the document there. And that has three basic parts. We're talking about from our perspective, what is culture, what is society, and then what is civil governance. Um, and as far as, I don't know, so maybe we could start uh, breaking down the basic points of sphere sovereignty yeah, so you've explained it. that that makes a lot of sense, the historical context of what was playing into all of this. So, yeah, maybe we can start breaking down, I guess, like the 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 finer points of it and like where, you know, what what they're like. I know we're not like doing a deep exegesis here, but what like what parts of scripture are informing the the, the different points? Well, let me before I bring in uh, some different scriptures that might uh, lend itself to an understanding, well, let me see. That would be the best way. Well, okay, let me start with this. Um, one thing that, uh, as I remember, Kuiper, at least, Doiverd brought into the discussion was that in creation, right, uh, God makes different kinds of things, each according to their own kind. Hmm. So that phrase from Genesis and the basic narrative of what we see God doing in creating the world is creating things different from each other. And that basic diversity in creation um, is crucial also to to human life, right? Mm. So it's not just a diversity in the quote-unquote natural order, but that human life was to develop and be fruitful um, according to a variety. Uh, Kuiper has this great uh, article I forget the exact dates. Let me see if I can remember the title. Something like, um, he, he in translation, he uses the word uniformity, and it's something like the, uh, I can't remember. Oh, darn it. It's not going to me. Anyway, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll send the link. But he's talking about how bad <laughs> modern life is in trying to make everything uniform. And of course, this is like uh, one of the key characteristics of authoritarianism and totalitarianism. Uh, you know, this um, horrible, anti-humane, um, making everything the same. This this comes up again and again. Yeah. And does it connect? Impulse. Yeah, good. Exactly. Does does it does it connect to like the uh, I don't know if Kuiper ever brought this up, but like where my mind goes is the uh, like the passage. You know, I forget. If, I think it's Corinthians, but I could be wrong. But where 
uh like paul's talking about the body of christ and like you know the hand says i'm not a foot and you know right. what is, is it kind of like that where yeah. it's like yeah. recognizing does that, like, refer to that yeah yeah because it's like different different areas of of competence and that kind of directs where your authority is supposed to go i guess is sort of what i was thinking yeah right that that's exactly the idea so that's sort of uh an organism an organic uh, metaphor and that uh, in an organism, I guess there may be that, you know, single-celled organisms, oh, there's still differentiation in these yeah. single-celled organisms, but um, <laughs> with, with this development of complexity, uh, we have uh, different parts doing different functions, and that's the uh, picture of the world that we get and how important that, how respecting that diversity, that variety is important to understanding human life and human communal life. Um, so there are, I don't know, let me think, maybe the first two sections under society from the uh, what is reformed anarchism, if I sort of like uh, read that out and then explicate it a little bit. Sure. That might be a way into it. Okay, so tinyurl.com slash refoanarchism, section two, or part two, uh, we have under A. So it was, what what is society? We've already discussed what is uh, culture. We can touch on that maybe if that comes into it. But in any case, uh, A is neither individualistic nor collectivistic. Society is not a single whole, right? And this is, this is really key because normally we, because it's like this collective noun, we just sort of think of it as one thing. But this is fundamental to understanding our perspective on uh, ultimately our opposition to monopoly on civil governance. But society itself is not a single whole. Rather, by society, we mean the numerous individual and communal relations of several varieties. There are inter-individual relations, right? communal relations, and inter-communal relations. So if you think about uh, an individualistic, not individualism in terms of methodological individualism, but an individualistic view of society, right? The basic idea is there's just individuals and maybe if they're atomists or some sort of extreme version, uh, they think groups are illusory, right? Mm. They're just communities yeah. are illusory. They're just aggregates of individuals. Um, with collectivism, it's sort of the reverse, right? And you see this in some early Greek thought and totalitarians and, uh, collectivists of all kinds of sort of, you know, continued this idea that there's just the group and then, you know, people are only what they are in relation to this whole and the whole is greater than its parts, this kind of thing. But uh, you need a both end perspective, right? right. Not in terms yeah. of both individualism and collectivism, but both individuals and groups. Yeah. And they're both real. So you have inter-individual relations 
communal relations and intercommunal relations. Uh, while only individuals act, neither society nor any communal relation can be properly reduced to only inter-individual relations. So this is a denial of uh, individualistic view of society. It's not just individuals. Uh, communities and other groups are real, right? So families are actually a thing. It's not yeah. an illusion. It's not... Um, it, it, when uh, a husband and wife their marriage and either by natural birth or adoption or whatever, and there's children, this family unit is actually a thing. And its difference from other things needs to be understood and respected for society to operate, just as one example. Um, an individual is never a mere part of a given community of which they are a member. Communal relations differ from inter-individual relations in being comparatively more enduring and involving authority arrangements, right? So that idea is, um, for example, in a family, let's say a child dies or the mother or, the, or the husband or wife dies, the mother or father dies, they're still, they're still a family. Um, but... Uh, members of the family are not just members of the family. They're individuals in their own right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, the whole, the whole community, like the family still exists, but if one individual within the family dies, the, the group, uh, that, that, that communal, the communal relationships and the, uh, I don't know, like I'm trying to think of the right word here. Like the, um, the, well, the nature of that persists, right? But it's but it but it does kind of fundamentally change a little bit, doesn't it? Like if if you have a family, like yeah. you know, like like I have three kids right now. If wow. I died, the family would still exist, but the family without the father, the kids being raised without the father, it, it suddenly fundamentally, you know, the the that that group has changed. So it's yeah. kind of like I kind of like what you said, kind of a both and kind of like like groups are are real. And individuals are real. And I've had these conversations with other Christians before who are libertarian minded because a lot of times, and I get where they're coming from because collectivism kind of like a lot of the, a lot of words you're using are, are things that like are good, but the left has weaponized them and corrupted them. Um, like diversity uh, groups, kind of like, you know, the ideas of communal living and stuff. Like sometimes these words have been like a lot of people push back against them because they've right. seen just like we're talking about with sphere sovereignty and the idea of authority, another thing that's been hijacked, but I don't know that that was just, um, yeah, no, that's right. We want to, we want to, uh, recognize realities, uh, in human existence and try to account for them without explaining away, without having to explain away, elements of them in order to justify other parts. That's what we don't want to do. We don't right. want to have a, we want to account for, uh, the full phenomena. Yeah. So, um, in any case, we're just touching on how inter-individual relations differ from a communal relation. And one of the differences is 
um, that communal relations can be relatively more enduring and than the individuals. Uh, and there's a, uh, authority structure. So between you and me, uh, we, we would say we have an inter-individual relation, let's say for this podcast, and uh, we're, we're operating basically as equals in the exchange, right? In some ways, there, there's different functions uh, in, our, in this particular relation. You're the host, I'm the guest. Um, in some ways, there's uh, it's like it's your podcast, right? Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of um, ownership privilege there that doesn't equally apply to me, but that's not the same thing as uh, a more enduring, let's say, like business. Like, let's say you and I partner to do a podcast together, and then. Well, anyway, so there's ways to differentiate um, what's an inter-individual relation and what's a communal relation. Right. Um, Neither individuals nor communities are more basic than or have their origin in the other. That was a negative. So neither one is more basic. Neither has their origin in the other. Um, individuals and various communities are themselves wholes, uh, ultimately structured or normed by God in creation. In this sense, we re- we reject both individualistic and collectivistic view of society. Um, okay, so that's just to A, that sort of gives the big picture. Now, with sphere sovereignty, what's being talked about is this uh normative arrangement and relations between different kinds of societal communities. So there's other, there's other basic relations in society. Society is not just communities. It's also into inter-individual relations and intercommunal relations. But what we're talking about now is these basic uh, communities. So, we say uh, there are distinct communal spheres. So this word sphere can just be understood to mean kind of communities, right? So there's the familial sphere, meaning there are families. That's one kind of community is family. There are many different families, but, or businesses, right? Yeah. So... These are different kinds, and there's many of those communities. Then there's in, like in overlapping things. Like I, I work in a family business, which that's an interesting like way to like analyze. Like there's there's this weird like I'm working with my father and my brother, but then it's like our working relationships have different rules, and the authority structures yeah. are, are different than the way the authority structures work when it's just like the the basic like relationship between like me and my father and me and my brother. And so that, that, that's always an interesting, like, you know, when I, when I think about our everyday interactions and when I was young and learning those dynamics kind of going, Hey, my relationship with my boss and my father are like different, even though they're the same person. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So as the same person, the, uh, 
communal relation, at least normatively right now, like he might. So if you messed up at work, uh, you know, this doesn't apply because you're an adult on your own, but let's <laughs> say you were a kid and you were right. getting an allowance. If you mess up at work, he's not going to dock your allowance, or at least he shouldn't that, that that's different. That's a different arrangement. I'm not saying every kid should get an allowance, but whatever. I'm something as an example, your pay at work maybe gets docked, right? Yeah. So this is an example of, of, of saying where the lines are in terms of the structurally different relationship. And these are normative in the sense of shoulds, right? So we think these are ways of analyzing how are these things put together and what sort of um, proper structure goes along with what they inherently are. Um, okay. So where were we? Uh, okay. So we're just saying there are distinct, uh, kinds of communities. Each kind of community is distinguished from other kinds by its own intrinsic nature, differently characterized in its organization and purpose, right? So the purpose of a family business is not for a parent to raise their children. Yeah. The purpose of the business is to do business. <laughs> yeah. And that's different than the purpose, the internal organization. Uh, the, it's different than the intrinsic nature of the family. Uh, governed. Okay, let me back up. Uh, each kind of community is distinguished from other kinds by its own intrinsic nature, differently characterized in its organization and purpose, governed by its own God-given norms. For example, there are familial or ecclesial faith or political civil or commercial or social or charitable or medical or educational or aesthetic arts kinds of communities among others. So we're just listing some different varieties to give examples of, of the kind of differences we're talking about. These are not, uh, can't be reduced to each other. They're not the same kind of community. Right. Uh, no single kind of community pro properly encompasses or re regulates all the others. Right. So, according to those differences and how their, their intrinsic nature and how they're organized and their purposes and all that kind of thing, you don't have one kind of community that encompasses all the others. So right. if you think about a Venn diagram, you're not going to draw a big circle and all the other circles in it. And particularly, obviously, you're not going to draw the state, although this is the statist conception, the collectivistic conception of society. Now, how, right. how is it arranged graphically in their minds? You have this big circle <laughs> and every other kind of community is just inside it. And that's the yeah. thing. And we're denying that model. We're saying that model is flawed. Yeah. Um, I mean, my, my when I was in a middle school and I got into a fight, the vice principal told my dad, when your son is here in our school, he's he's our child, not yours. Which, Crazy. which is, yeah, which is like, no, it's like, you don't, you don't have that kind of, you know, like you have authority over me insofar as like, you're my principal and my teacher. So like what I do in school and on your private property, yes, you have a certain control over that, but uh, you don't have the kind of authority over me that my parents have over me. So to call you 
to call me your child when I'm on the premises is 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 completely uh, in error. Yeah, that's a clear uh, authoritarian, collectivistic, or whatever reductionistic. Maybe uh, he's absolutizing the authority of the school in that case over a kid. Okay, and really, it's the state because the school is the extension of the state, the state yeah, now. Exactly. So it's statism. That's the <laughs> yep. only reason anybody would say something so stupid. Right. Um, so, uh, no single kind of community properly encompasses or regulates all the others, nor does any particular community of a given kind properly encompass or regulate all the others of that same kind. So you don't have, despite the wishes of the mafia, <laughs> you don't have, they're a criminal organization, not just a family, but they're a crime family, like business. Um, but you don't just have one family that's like ruling all the other families, right? That's not how we, now like, like right. in a tribal, in a less differentiated, less developed sort of form of society, things might be seemingly organized that way. But ultimately, uh, that's, that's not the normative development in society. So if you start out, you know, tribally, everyone's basically related. <laughs> you can have sort of those blurrings of the lines, but as society becomes more complex and developed, um, it, it follows this differentiation of, of, of norms in this way. Uh, each kind of community has its own particular function and its own kind of limited authority and competence directly ordained by God and not mediated by any other kind. This, this point that it's not a mediated competence or authority is important in this next, uh, this next part. Anyway, so we say this has been called sphere sovereignty. So we introduce the term. Then we say we reject the collectivistic view of, uh, of so-called subsidiarity. Now, subsidiarity, sometimes even Althusius's views were uh, referred to as subsidiarity, uh, while the Catholics also aren't the Roman Catholics that adopted that phrase uh, as it's developed in a collect collectivistic sense, it's, it's very problematic. So we're, we're distinguishing that view and saying you can't associate sphere sovereignty and subsidiary according to this collectivistic idea of it in which, uh, while seeking to be bottom up, affirming that the lowest level of organization has original jurisdiction uh, nevertheless subsumes all societal communities as so-called mediating institutions right if you've read any of these uh, catholic conservatives like on first things they they really like this phrase mediating institutions between the individual and the state and this is a flawed notion <clears throat> uh uh subsumes all societal communities under an all-encompassing state. Um, so some people have this idea, basically, that there's a hierarchy. Right. Right. So they're not just going to say the state, they're going to try to nuance, I guess, the um, collectivistic idea by putting into a hierarchy and putting the original jurisdiction and sort of motivation from power. They want to say it's got to be bottom up. Right. Mm. 
And we're saying that's that's not sphere sovereignty. That idea of just it's all still one thing and we're decentralizing and right. we're bringing it down to the grassroots. That's the best they have to offer. And we're saying, no, we have we have a different conception than that because that's still collectivistic. And we're rejecting that. Sure. Um, so that, that was the two points from, hope that wasn't too no, much was good. for anybody. No, good. To, again, I, I, so I, I kind of like, uh, 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 bullet pointed here in, in, in four points. So let, let me try to summarize. Sure. So when we're talking about sphere sovereignty, the first thing we want to say is, uh, that there are distinct kinds of communities, right? So that differentiates us from an individualistic view because we believe communities are real. It differentiates us from a collectivistic view because we're saying there are basic different kinds. So that's the first point. There are, there are communities <laughs> and they are, there are several distinct kinds of communities. The second point is that um, each kind of community has its own intrinsic nature and jurisdiction, if you will, its own scope of activity and particular function, uh, its own limited authority and competence directly ordained by God in Christ, according to God-given norms. So start to think about what those were, that those were listed, uh, self-governance being different from uh, ecclesial, that is the church, from the family, from businesses, from uh, healthcare. That's an important one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that has its own functions. Uh, education, even. Yeah. Uh, so that's the second point that they, that they're differently characterized. The third point would be against this collectivistic subsidiarity or just like a kind of mere keeping a kind of collectivism, but then trying to improve it by way of just an idea of decentralization. Right. Sure. If you have a group decentralizing power might be an appropriate and good thing. But if you're trying to encompass society as a whole, simply sort of like decentralizing it and trying to drive um, power to the bottom is not an adequate conception of society or protection against tyranny. And that's a, that's a key thing to realize. Um, no, no kind of community is rightly mediated by, nor does it encompass or regulate any other kind. It's not a hierarchy, although there might be a hierarchy, you know, a particular authority arrangement in some community, the communities themselves or the kinds of communities themselves are not hierarchically. Arranged. Right. I mean, like to put it in my own words and kind of, well, kind of your words too. It's like, it's not a pyramid. It's literally like what you said, it's the Venn diagrams that are, you know, there are overlaps at times, but they're not just 
all within one pyramid that's going down, so to right. speak. An overlap, an overlap might be in terms of, let's say, um, individuals and families or households in a church, right? Yeah. So your membership in the church um, is related to your membership in the family, but uh, it's not wholly dependent on that, or it's not subsumed by that and vice versa. Right. Sure. So that, yeah. uh, families are not in independent, you know, a given family, uh, can't itself be a church. <laughs> um, uh, and some people have gone with that, like patriarchalists and, and, and people like that, they have these wacky ideas, you know, theonomists have, uh, distorted these things. Uh, quite a bit over the years and I've had those kinds of problems not being able to differentiate. Uh, in any case, um, so there's no hierarchical arrangement, although they are connected or coordinated in various different ways. We talked about family business and then families in the uh, church, also uh, an educational institution and so on. So the last part is no particular community of any given kind encompasses or regulates others of its own kind. Um, hmm. So no mafia family. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so those are the four points. There are communities and there's different kinds. Second, each has its own intrinsic nature that's different. Uh, they're not hierarchically arranged and within any given kind, there's no single one that encompasses them all. And of course, when we come to the issue of civil governance, this is what the state is doing. Mm -hmm. Even if it's um, federalized, even if it's <laughs> decentralized, it's still a monopolistic organization. I think my dad used to tell me, tell me, uh, you can polish a turd, but, uh, <laughs> you're still holding, a, still holding a pile of, uh, SHIT in your hand. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's essentially what the idea of it's, it's the direction federalism was going in or decentralization was going in to protect against tyranny. Of course, that was their obvious intention, um, uh, separation of powers and all this kind of thing. But if you have a monopoly, it's in principle totalitarian. Right. And in practice will inevitably always tend towards increasing uh, totalitarianism in practice. Yeah, and, that makes and sense. So, so, right, so that, that's the basic idea of sphere sovereignty. It's uh, distinct from a more narrow political theory or political philosophy, which would concern, um, you know, civil governance or rights as such. Uh, sphere sovereignty is part of a broader, what we might call societal ontology, right? So what we started with, with these basic different kinds of relations in society, society is not just a single thing. It's, it's, it's uh, constituted by these basically different kinds of relations right individual inter-individual 
communal and intercommunal. This is sort of like a societal ontology, a, a, a view, a theoretical view of the being of what society is. And yeah. then this is focusing on an idea of an arrangement between different kinds of uh, communities. Right. And then I guess you could say, I mean, there, there's, I guess there's two connections between sphere uh, that I'm, there might be more, but the two I'm mainly seeing here, one that you've kind of already touched on very well, which is like, you know, the ideas of, uh, the ideas of sphere sovereignty push back against the idea that like, uh, there's this one giant group that monopolizes all the different relationships and, and different groups uh, that, that exist. And then uh, two, I, I guess the, the second thing that I'm, and this kind of goes to the things we've talked about before, that there is within the different types of groups and different types of relationships, one of those different categories would then be people who... I guess, act in the role of authority when they're like administering uh, civil justice or upholding civil justice. That might be one, like, would you say that's one type of, of group or, or relationship that exists? Right. There'd be people exactly. that do so that. In our, yeah. in our statement, what is reformed anarchism? The third section gets at that. So we specify, we do our best to, in as concise way as possible, uh, talk about what is it that forms the kind of community known as that we're calling civil governance. And uh, it has to do with adjudicating disputes over rights violations. Right. And that being normed by self-ownership or its sort of obligatory uh, corresponding principle, the non-aggression principle, right? So what's the obligation of the fact that we have self-ownership? My obligation, given your self-ownership, is non-aggression. And that norms the understanding of rights in terms of not initiating coercion against other people's persons or property. Yeah. And that uh, adjudicating disputes over those things, according to the norms of civil justice, is what defines the community, the kind of community of civil uh, civil governance. It is, civil governance is adjudicating those kinds of disputes. Yep. <clears throat> but the people that do that they only have that uh, like that phrase compute. Um, what's the phrase? Um, they only have the uh, computational authority to do that which is prescribed. Right? Like they can adjudicate those disputes, but then right. they can't come into your household so and say, "Here's how you raise yeah. your children. Here's what you need to teach them in school. Here's here, you know. Oh, and by the way, um, instead of the relationship between me and you being voluntary, we're now going to claim." 20% of your wealth because, you know, we, you know, like it, it, it's a, uh, abuse of, of the type of authority they have. Yeah. So the other, the other Christian or biblical principle <clears throat> besides the basic diversity in creation, uh, that comes into this has to do 
with God's own absolute sovereign authority over all things that he created. And because that's true, that means no human authority can be absolute. Sure. Right? That's what, so, so let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> Not only, so, so these are the two main uh, biblical or Christian principles that we would draw to um, sort of inform that underwrite the idea of sphere sovereignty, this sort of basic diversity in creation in reality, and then the fact that God's sovereignty is absolute. And that's what, in a way, guarantees the non-absolute character or the relative character, the limited character of all human authority. And that undermines the idea of the state completely. It is a mm. pagan notion. The mm. state cannot be a Christian notion because yeah. well, it yeah. is claimed in its essence, in what it is, this idea of the monopoly is totalistic, is absolute, and is a rival to God's own, own God's only, his soul, only God has absolute authority. Yeah. Absolute it, sovereignty. That's pretty much what God said in First Samuel 8. It's just like when you guys asked yeah. for a king and the justification they gave was we want to be like the the people around us who all have kings so they were they were mixing with they wanted they were being influenced by the pagan cultures around them god said it's a form of idolatry you're 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 abusing uh you're you're, you're wanting to submit to authorities that aren't me and i'm the only true one authority and the idea of a king is kind of like in in stark contradiction to that and, and yeah, then it, he's yeah. uh, he, he's he's pointing to the idolatry, right? So attributing to something else what only belongs to God, that 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 definitely comes out. Nevertheless, in redemptive history, God is able to use. Um, he he still limits. He still limits in instituting the monarchy in old covenant theocratic Israel, right? That's, yeah. that's under a different covenant. So uh, that's, that's important to recognize, but he still uh, allows for its institution according to his own. He still norms it limit in a limited fashion, right? Now he says, you're going to abuse this. You're going to distort this. This is going to go bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> but he still then uh, takes that, opportunity as it were in redemptive history to appoint the monarchy in a limited fashion for its symbolic purpose of pointing to Christ's own absolute uh soul absolute authority yeah uh in any case so we can think of plenty examples of different kind of of ways of violating sphere sovereignty as sort of parallel to violating individual rights. Um, so in any given community, uh, an ostensible authority or the community itself lording it over some other kind of community and how that would violate their rights, like the school trying to tell parents how to raise their children. Yeah. Right. You can just think of it. You could, you could, you could make up uh, examples of, I don't know, a business trying to tell a church how to 
do what churches do or vice versa. Obviously, we don't have to think too hard about actual historical examples of a absolutistic kind of church, a church reaching too far beyond its own uh, uh, sphere of competence. Yeah. Right. And claiming temporal power as the medieval church did. And yeah, but uh, of course, in history, constantly, the biggest actual threat are is, you know, whichever group or individual is going to try to coercively enforce its antinormative claim. And if that's not the state, you know, in like in medieval periods, it's someone claiming what the state is now claiming, which is its own monopolistic right. Um, so that's the real danger. Yeah. If, uh, you know, if a school doesn't have the power of the state behind it and it's doing something I don't like, I can walk away, take my kids out, whatever. There's no one forcing me under the threat of injury, you know, bodily or, you know, uh, aggression against my property. That's right, not I'm, there. My, my cat is right below my mic purring. I don't know if you guys can hear that or not. <laughs> He's just literally staring at me like, Rrr, Rrr. Oh, but, um, uh, so yeah. Get the cat I, interested. Right. Yeah. Sovereignty. He, he's really, he's not, not usually this uh, active in my podcasts, but, uh, I guess he's, yeah. uh, he, he's, he's confessional, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, there's some other historical uh, things we could bring into it, like what the heck happened in the Netherlands and why everything went bad. I mean, not everything uh, is horribly wrong, but uh, it became quite socialistic in Europe after the World Wars, of course. But um, I don't know. That's that's a uh, – let me think what else I wanted to touch on. Um well, anyway, I hope I hope people will take a look at um, the what is reformed anarchism. There's audio there for that as well. Yeah, we'll definitely link all that as well the, as the uh, text. Uh, years ago, I wrote a uh, a paper that became a presentation. So if you looked up uh, on YouTube my name and Sphere Sovereignty, you probably see that presentation at a conference at Princeton in 2000. Eight. That was just before I became an anarchist uh, <laughs> that I was presenting that. I had written the paper and I've since um, written another version. So I'll, I'll, I'll send you the links to that paper okay. if people want to read something even more academic on it. Actually, I think it's li linked and in, 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 with each section in the statement, what is reformed anarchism, we have like reference citations. And I think it's one of those citations there. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, obviously there's, there's Romans 13, which we've done a whole other podcast on that. I mean, are there other, I don't know, things that, you know, whether they're reformed Christians or not, that people abuse in the scripture or misunderstand that cause them to view those with the authority to like those acting within the prescribed role of a, the authority of civil governance that like, they think that those people must have, some kind of justified absolute power or special power? Like, is there anything that people 
other than okay, we've done Romans thirteen, you know, pretty extensively. But I don't know if there's any other things that that people have have misunderstood. I know within with a Reformed Church, there's you know uh, many who are self-proclaimed uh, theonomists and stuff, and and believe that you know also for some reason believe that the the role of those administering civil governance must be necessarily the mosaic law and and, and administering those right. sanctions and stuff i don't know maybe you know with a little bit of time we have left here if there's anything there that that you know maybe we want to touch on to maybe provide some sort of like uh um illumination or, or uh correction yeah so many different directions we could go in um we definitely this the neo-calvinistic conception of sphere sovereignty even though some theonomists have sort of latched on to kuiper lesser degree the doivard because they he's somewhat impenetrable <laughs> people have a hard time understanding him so they don't know what he's saying uh bonson was anti-doivard so i guess that was enough to put them off of it but somehow they think they can get away with um co-opting kuiper and that's criminal because he, uh, his his ideas are not uh, compatible with their view. You know, he was uh, a uh, Amil, basically anti-theonomist, like the rest of the earlier reformers, which they they completely wash over. They don't understand the the distinctions. But anyway, so there's a lot to be said about that. Um, why anything smacking of post-millennialism or soft theonomy is garbage. Um, let me think. And in terms of what, what people will, the tendency of people to, that leads to a mistaken notion or abuse. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I think there's nothing unique about, Christians as fallen human beings in that respect. Sure. Um, yeah. The, the, the most uh, atheistic uh, professing to be uh, democratic and espousing equality organizations uh, are rife with. Oh yeah, for sure. It's, it's, it's not like, it's not like Christians <laughs> are, I, I definitely would never say Christians no. are especially, um, drawn towards uh authoritarianism it just seems to like to me like these ideas seem very self-evident but then i mean there's even people a lot of them kind of theonomists but not even just theonomists who even uh they completely misunderstand or misrepresent even like the type of authority that that parents have over their children and other types of authority like it's just the, the whole concept of authority is just i think really misunderstood by many Christians reformed and not where they think authority yeah. is the right to sovereignly control or coerce people. Yeah. Um, and, and just to mistreat people in other ways, uh, because there is a power differential Yeah, and between parents and children, you know, that, uh, there is a legitimate authority yeah and that is partly reflected 
in the objective situation of whatever parents being adults and their offspring being children for a time anyway. And, um, that dynamic, uh, that arrangement can, can go wrong. And then it's natural for people to appeal to whatever is at hand to justify, Mm. uh, abuses. And so I think that's, that's partially what happens Yeah, because, uh, if a Christian is recognizing God's authority and, um, part of his intent for normative and flourishing human life is that there are, um, different kinds of communal relations with different kinds of authorities and these, um, as operating correctly or properly um, should be respected and acknowledged. And uh, that's the design, for example, in the family, Um, then because, because we understand that that's part of reality, we're not trying to deny that aspect of the way God made the world. Then when things go bad, um, we can just sort of use that as a way to perpetuate, you know, it's the worst kind of distortion possible, right? I mean, that you would use something good in itself to perpetuate something evil, to perpetuate the corruption of that very good thing of that thing itself that is good you're using that as an excuse to continue to perpetuate some kind of evil that's going on it's like the worst people are the worst yeah (laughs) that's why that's why that's why uh anyone who doesn't believe in inherent total corruption and depravity of mankind is utterly deluded yeah think on that yeah really Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. It's, I always love when, you know, the, some of the irrational, like knee jerk reactions you get from people when they, when you like, I'm a libertarian or I'm an anarchist. It's like, oh, well, you must believe that all, all men are saints. It's like, no, no, actually quite, quite right. far from that. I believe almost the exact opposite. People. This is what right. Jesus came to save sinners. Amen. Well, I'll have yeah. to put some links to that. The, yeah, the state cannot save you. But you know, it's you know that's goodness. the other error that that um, theonomists make too, which is like, and this is I'd be, I wanted to get your your take on this. They feel like so like some theonomists will will kind of like agree with you on some form of limited government shouldn't be socialistic, shouldn't have like they'll, they'll a lot of them like there's people like Gary North who are actually very educated on economics and stuff, very yeah. good on free markets. But then where the line gets blurry for them is they think that those who are acting in the role of civil governance also have that uh, uh, authoritative uh, authoritative competence to um, uh, trying to think Uh, they have the the authoritative competence to use that kind of power to punish Mm -hmm. sin, not just like any sin, not just. Uh, right. people who are breaking uh well, like violating okay let rights. me okay this uh, let, let me this is a good place to plug uh 
my friend's uh, podcast <laughs> that I had mentioned earlier on, because to understand the proper uh, covenantal reform distinctions between old covenant and new covenant, right? That theonomists do not properly understand um, a, what's sometimes called a redemptive reformed, redemptive historical uh, biblical theology and in this sense, biblical theology doesn't mean just theology, theology that's biblical, but it's a certain discipline within like systematic theology relative to that. Um, it's called upper register. Okay. Uh, Charles Lee Irons, uh, Lee, as his friends call him, uh, goes by his middle name. And uh, if you searched for it, it's on a number of... Uh, aggregators. It's on uh, Google Podcasts. It's not quite on Apple yet, so the ones that depend on that haven't picked it up. But uh, it's on Amazon, Spotify, whatever. So Upper Register, Reformed Biblical Theology with Charles Lee Irons. Um, that's really key. And uh, I think a few, I don't know how many episodes he's got out, maybe six or so. Um, down the road, I think he's going to be interacting maybe a little bit with, uh, some neo-Calvinism. He and I have had quite an extensive, uh, private conversation about these things. Hmm. Um, if you see one of a YouTube video of me talking about Meredith Klein with, uh, relation between Klein and Herman Doiverd on some other podcast, that's really inside baseball. I don't particularly <laughs> recommend that one. No one will understand it. But anyway, uh, so Lee and I have talked about these things relative to sphere sovereignty. He's fairly partial to it, I think. So in any case, we were talking about the misunderstandings of scriptural revelation and the difference between the old covenant and the way God organized the people of God in this national form under uh, a civil government and the difference between that and the new covenant that does not have that same arrangement and is not obligated to those same uh, um, yeah it's not obligated so the, so the theonomic conception theonomic conception is that mosaic civil law is moral and that the moral law must be enforced by the civil government as it was in the because uh, it worked so well back then administration <laughs> yeah and that's completely mistaken that it was that way uh, served what we call a typological purpose typology being like a symbol with the added dimension of time mm, okay. right so it was a, a symbol pointing to something in the future and the thing mm. in the future that it's pointing to particularly as Jesus Christ, but the consummate kingdom of glory at his second return. Hmm. So it's not indicative of uh, the new, new covenant era of the church before final judgment. Right. It's not determinative for that at all. It is in, in a sort of uh, semi-fulfilled way morally within the church, right? So 
unrepentant adulterers or whatever uh, we we don't continue to have fellowship with in the church. Right. But like Galatians but, uh, and stuff like that, like Paul talks about what we should do with, you know, people who are living in unrepentant sin in our in our own spheres and stuff. But I, I don't I mean, as far as I know, I'm not you know, saying I'm I'm the expert on every single line in the Bible. Maybe I'm missing something, but I can't recall a line ever in the New Testament where Paul or any other apostle says, you know, and if there's people outside of your community who are living in sin, you're to go and wield the sword against them. Yeah. And now and in <laughs> fact he says specifically Paul says the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> he says, and I and he says, when I'm saying don't associate with these people, he said he says, I don't mean those outside the church. He's like, you couldn't yeah. do that and if you wanted to unless you left the planet. That's that's a rough paraphrase, but that's basically what he says. Right. Um, so, you know, there's no excuse. No. Yeah. And really, it's like, I don't understand how theonomists don't just end up like, to, to, to me, Christian theonomy often very creepily starts to resemble Islam, where it's like, how are you not just justifying create like turning Christianity into a religion of conquest? And well, I'm that's like, interesting that, yeah. Um, yeah, in the political development of Islam, the mentality, well, what I was saying about um, the state being a pagan notion, hmm. part, part of what makes that so, in some ways, has to do with uh, the inherent religious quality or basis for all of human life and including civil governance. So that, that, that's, a, that's a fact. Um, but that's not an argument for theonomy for a number of reasons. But um, when you try to take that model, which is this symbolic model of the future heavenly kingdom, um, when you try to perpetuate that outside of the, the specific covenant arrangement for which it was designed. Remember we were saying, we were talking about like treating other things, attributing to other things that only belong to God. So God's prerogative to um, have this special design and then trying to perpetuate it outside of, of what he designed it for. Um, is usurping God's mm. prerogative to establish um, this kind of religious symbol. You're usur you are usurping his prerogative to do that uh, and, and to have it something that had its limited purpose. It's like reinstituting the sacrifices. Yeah. And they always, you know, they, they make these very flawed arguments. It's just like, well, you're saying that the Mosaic law was bad and doesn't isn't good for all time. It's like, well, I'm not going back retroactively and saying it was bad back then, but I'm saying yeah. it was issued for a specific people at a specific time. And yeah, it, it, to me, it fits into the idea Hebrews. of just read yeah. the New Testament <laughs> book of Hebrews, people. It's like it, it to me, it fits into this idea, the ideas of, of uh, sphere sovereignty, which is like. The idea of, you know, there's different communities, different different groups, different relationships, and 
and and then i think also like you were pointing on like the 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 covenantal differences and then yeah. a lot of a lot of the stuff that's in the old testament wasn't bad but it had it had a limited scope and purpose but everything in the old testament points to christ <laughs> well um besides linking <laughs> to uh lee iron's podcast upper register i'll also uh send you a link for show notes and I'll try to do this uh, sometime tomorrow, by the way, so you can attach it to whatever recording of this. Um, an article by Meredith Klein on theocracy. So he's kind of he's kind of talking about the special function of theocracy. That might be a little too much in, inside baseball too, but whatever. It might stimulate some people's thinking about it. Um, yeah. No, it's yeah. good. The more, the more, the better. Gives people, you know. Sometimes, you know, people are sometimes smarter than we give them credit for, and then sometimes they're dumber. So it just, <laughs> it cuts both ways. <laughs> well, when, uh, when you're interested, when you're introduced to new ideas, um, even if you're academically inclined and can sort of get into the deep end of the pool, um, it, you know, sometimes the more popular introductions are an easier entrance into that yeah so anyway carrie had a carrie had a good question here i mean, we'll end on this how does uh sphere sovereignty play with the concept of spontaneous order thanks for the softball <laughs> just kidding <laughs> um well so in the uh what is reformed anarchism statement we go on to um connect it to other issues in society in what is what is society um so when i was saying that uh sphere sovereignty relates to this broader uh societal ontology uh as part of what i was saying um so let me <laughs> I say it was a softball, but then I have to uh, <laughs> actually give it some thought to to answer it. Um, he choked. Okay, so, he choked in the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's like the wide receiver okay. that drops the wide open pass. It's like so, if <laughs> so if we're thinking about these um, various kinds of communities and how society as a whole and human life generally or in society is to normatively function. Uh, that is, um, if if a family is governed by parents, let's say, and let's say a, a corresponding idea of self-ownership for their own community, and a church has its own, or any other religious community has its own religious leaders, and they're sort of governed that way if these different kinds of communities are not to impinge improperly impinge on one another um what is it that makes the whole array of these different kinds of communities and different societal relations um uh how, how is it regulated how does it function hmm. and this is the genius of the insight into spontaneous order uh, we call it a uh, emergent, an emergent order, 
We right. think it's actually normed by God. So maybe spontaneous uh, isn't exactly the right idea. But in any case, it's not something centrally planned. Right. And it's polycentric. Right. So let me, here we, we got a phrase here. Let me, let me pull out a phrase. Um, society is normatively ordered and governed polycentrically. That is, what do we mean by poly, polycentrically? We mean within a variety of relations and particular communities of different kinds. Um, the, the broader polycentric societal complex, so that's what we're calling it, you know, the whole mishmash, is uh, coordinated emergently through the self-governance of each instance of the variety of relations and each particular community of the several distinct kinds. Now, you might be wondering, and this is according to God's normative design. Now, you might be wondering, how, how does that work? So, giving an in-depth uh, explanation of uh, spontaneous order, I'm not going to try to do that off the cuff in any meaningful <laughs> way in two minutes. Yeah. But uh, there are resources for that in the... Um, in the uh, statement, what is reformed anarchism as well. So in that section, what section was that? Was that C? 2, 2C covers that. And at the bottom, we give some links. There's a historical uh, review from the uh, online Library of Liberty, an article by Norman Barry on the tradition of spontaneous order. That's really, really informative. And uh, then the fee has some various yeah. articles on spontaneous order. And yep. that, that, that's how, that's how the whole societal complex, uh, functions, uh, not through any, it's through human action, but not through any specific human intent to govern the whole thing. Yeah. And like, sometimes I almost feel it's, and like, I, I get the, 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 purpose of having the adjectives of spontaneous or emergent but it's like part of me like is just like well to me it's just it, it is just order and the problem is people have like we were talking about earlier it's just people conflate order with coercion and and force and it's just like but just think about like yeah. if someone's committing violence against you if someone is forcing you into compliance how you know how peaceful and how co cooperative does that feel I mean, it's just like to me, true order and true authority. They are like I'm not. I'm not saying they are. Like, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be careful not to like give off the wrong impression. I'm not saying that that authority um, is something where it's like you're just, you know, like like parents go to their kids and like ask them, "Can you please clean your room?" And they go, "No," and then it's like, "Ah, oh, shucks!" Like no, like you oh, know, uh, yeah, like authority does give you the, um, you know, like gives you some uh scope of ability to uh to to command those that are within your authoritative competence to to command but it's it's not through it's but like those relationships that if it's a parent to a kid i guess like the kid doesn't voluntarily choose the parent but it's something ordained by god 
And then in the marketplace, all those relationships, if you don't have a state, well, they were formed voluntarily. So if you voluntarily enter into a relationship or a group and there's rules, then like there is no force. The order is entirely cooperative. And that is actual to me. That is the real essence of order. And the idea yeah. that order is the op the opposite idea that it's through coercion and force. There's nothing to me that is actually compatible with the idea of order. To me, that is chaos. That's that is it's just but right. they've if been conditioned. Yeah. If you introduce uh, coercion in an, in an initiatory way on a, other people's persons and property, it's going to be distortive inevitably. Yeah. Well, it's and just the basically, idea of central yeah. planning that doesn't respect uh, in a way <clears throat> the natural but through human action order that emerges in society naturally – if that's not respected, the intrusion of aggression necessarily distorts that. Um, yeah. And let me, let me try to think. Uh, so there are forms of authority that, um, for example, with a business, they're an extension of property rights um, and that involve – planning, right? That involve human design and intent. So an entrepreneur has to uh, engage in basically a form of planning, <laughs> right? To coordinate his resources and means to ends, do whatever he's trying to do. Um, and that cannot function in society as a whole, one, because it's too complex. Yeah. Right. So the diversity that God, God built into creation and uh, in human life needs to be respected. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, we talk about the, hu the hubris of uh, authoritative and, and you know, authoritarianism and central planning that they are not respecting the complexity and diversity that God built into reality. And, uh, anyway. Yeah. It's complex that's, that's, and that's yet simple because it's, it's it, complex. It, it, to it. Yeah. Like it, it's complex in that, like, it's not like it's one thing. It is a di diverse, you know, number of different things, overlapping and interacting but it's simple in the norms that it operates by right like it's just it's the norms that god gave us so i don't think that the the moral norms that god gave us are complicated well that's it <laughs> that's that that's the other part right not yeah. not only is society too complex to centrally plan and to to try to coordinate all the you know, seemingly infinite variety of interests that you could never successfully coordinate. No human being could. Um, the fact that initiating coercion in order to uh, execute that kind of planning is a violation of God's norm. And that's simple enough. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's a good point.
Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks, Dred, for coming on. Um, I think that was a fantastic uh, break, breaking down of sphere sovereignty and kind of like the, the Christian and reformed views of, of, of authority and, and, and kind of like connecting these to the, to the, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of a political philosophy, but you know, it's, I've also, I'm trying to get more used to just not like compartmentalizing my beliefs and just like, you know, like, you know, these things aren't, separate and detached these things are in me like there 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 are different categories of course and different like like ideas and, and trains of thoughts but like you know my political philosophy is not like just some weird arbitrary thing that's loosely disconnected from my faith you know what i mean that these are all no, yeah thank god yeah. i mean if somehow it was at odds or incompatible you know we wouldn't be holding to it but we can yeah. learn because it is it does come out of it is grounded in our faith uh discovering how that's the case more and more is we're, we're on that journey together so yeah it's exciting absolutely cool i'll uh is there anything else you wanted to plug before we uh you've, you've plugged a lot of stuff here but is there anything else yeah. you wanted to i might have to listen to it again to think of all the stuff that i wanted to send <laughs> you for references for further reading kind of thing um well not directly about sphere sovereignty, uh, but I feel like you and I should come back and discuss uh, uh, the epistemic credentials of your faith, because I've heard you say several times, um, I, I feel like you're trying to express something about Christianity in terms of uh, your position of belief in God, you know, holding it in a humble way. Hmm. And yet I feel like you're also kind of mixing in a thing where you're sort of, uh, saying that it's, um, entitlement to epistemic justification is, uh, questionable or something anyway. So I wanted to differentiate those things and hmm. encourage people more in fact, I have the book here. It's gonna it's gonna go under a different title eventually. Uh, Knowing with the heart hmm. by Roy Clouser, who's also worked quite a bit on Doiverd and um, has a great section in another book. Oh yeah, he wrote called yeah. uh, "The Myth of Religious Neutrality" about on sphere sovereignty. So that's something else to look at. But anyway, he talks about the status of belief in God in this book. It's quite good. That's interesting. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a complicated thing trying to because it's to me it's like it's called faith, so there has to be something that separates faith from just like, well, it just like asserted as fact. But it, I, I like the title of that book because it actually kind of correlates with like my experience, yeah. which is like it's kind of knowing with your heart. Can you put it into words and put it out in a? I mean, I think I can make compelling arguments for why. Um, you know, like I think the argument for God's existence and why, like, my experience is knowing God is real is not, it's not equatable in a, you can't translate it in a scientific sense where it's like, here's my hypothesis, I conducted this test, and I came to this conclusion. It's more okay. like this, it's, at least in my experience, it's more you're, just you're, like... You're on, the, you're on the right track, you're on the right yeah. track. <laughs> um, but we'll come back to it. Yeah, we'll come back to it. It's 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 a interesting discussion to, there's, there's to be had for all, sure. Here's here's the here's the teaser that there's 
alternative means of justifying beliefs other than proof. Hmm. So there's proof. Proof is inference, inferential reasoning. There's other rational means of justification that are not inferential. Cool. And well, so yeah, that's, we'll, that's the key. So we'll come I'll, back to that. We'll come back to that. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Greg, for uh, coming <laughs> on again. And uh, thanks to those who've been watching this entire time. Appreciate uh, everyone watching your comments and carry your good questions as well. So, uh, yeah, thanks, everybody. And uh, enjoy the rest of your night. Good talking to you again. Talk to you again soon. Yep.